You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Foundation Radio is brought to you by 10th Ward Barbershop. Serving the historic 10th Ward in downtown Lawrenceville, 10th Ward Barbershop is a full-service barbershop offering quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. Adam gets his hair and beard trimmed by the owner of the shop, Ryan Kane, and he loves the laser point precision cuts and lineup he provides to him and countless other satisfied customers. But you don't have to take Adam's word for it. WWE superstars Corey Graves and The Fiend Bray Wyatt frequent 10th Ward for all their hair and beard trimming needs. Right now, all all cuts and trims are by appointment only. So head over to their website at 10thwardbarbershop.com and book your appointment now with Kane, Jordan, and the rest of the team at 10th Ward Barbershop. That's 10thwardbarbershop.com. And we thank them for supporting the podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Foundation Radio is brought to you by The Dugout. The Dugout provides custom quality apparel at an affordable price. Modern style mixed with classic designs, you'll find retro t-shirts brought into the 21st century. Adam has several of his favorite t-shirts in rotation from the team at The Dugout, including customized Dudley Boys, Prince in the Revolution, and the Notorious B.I.G. t-shirts. Right now, if you purchase your items through their Etsy site and use promo code FOUNDATION, you'll receive 15% off your entire order. That's right, 15% off your entire order. Follow them on Instagram at The Dugout Brand. Follow the link on their Etsy shop and use your promo code FOUNDATION for 15% off your entire order. The Dugout, custom quality apparel at an affordable price. Welcome, everybody, to Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Barnard. Thank you so much for joining me again today. My guest on the program is the former director of speech writing for under President Barack Obama. His new book, Grace, President Obama and the 10 Days in the Battle for America is out now. Friends, please welcome Cody Keenan to the show. Cody, how are you, sir? And thank you so much for being here. I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. I'm uh, happy to have you here again. I just want to make sure I mention up at the top, this book is incredible. Um, I have not been able to put it down. Um, I'm really going to dive deep into this as well. I want to ask you some questions, but first I kind of want to know a little bit more about you and kind of give readers a context of who you are uh, as an individual. Uh, you were a lot like me, jumping majors a lot when you first started in college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, how did you end up in political science? Like, was it what, what gravitated you towards that world? Yeah, I started college as pre-med because I, I tore apart my knee playing high school football and had to put back together, and I thought that was cool. <laughs> um, but chemistry weeded me out real quick, which right. I think is what it's designed to do. And then I kind of bounced around, and I realized I'd, I realized all along I'd been taking political science courses mm. without kind of even putting two and two together. And I'd always been interested in politics ever since you know my parents had big arguments about it at the kitchen table. Um, 
and I figured, I remember I, I had this kind of moment where I was thinking, you know, I could operate on knees and help one person at a time, or I can get into public service and help lots of people in different ways. Um, and that was kind of it. And then you end up doing an internship with uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, which, I mean, tell me more about that. I'm a big Kennedy, Kennedy guy. I have, a, I have Bobby Kennedy right over here on my other side here on my left shoulder. Uh, tell me more about what it was like to be just even in the presence of someone like Ted Kennedy. Oh, uh, well, he's, he was so down to earth, especially for who he was, that you, you don't think I'm standing with a Kennedy brother, the last Kennedy brother. Um, but he was also a bit of a force of nature, too. I started writing speeches for him by the end of my four years with him, and it was always just kind of uh, a gamble to see if he'd even stick to the script. You know, he was, he was, he was a hurricane on the Senate floor. Um, but it was also my greatest learning experience. You know, I started out as an intern in the mailroom, in this windowless mailroom, just reading and routing mail. And I was 22 years old. And, and you see uh, perfect strangers just kind of spilling their guts onto the page, even for a senator who wasn't their own, because they felt like they weren't represented by theirs. And just not necessarily even asking for specific help, but just wanting somebody to know what their life was like and to care about it. Um, and that was really eye-opening. That's not the type of thing they teach you when you're getting a political science degree. And I got hooked. And and just, he was a master legislator. He had the biggest staff on the Hill. And he was just, if there was any big piece of legislation, he was involved. It's incredible. I know I, I always kind of draw parallels between Ted Kennedy and then the man who ended up, you know, becoming one of your collaborators, uh, Barack Obama. I always, and I think that was what was drew, what drew me initially to Obama in the initial onset of the campaign was I really felt that when this man spoke, a lot like Ted Kennedy, I felt like he was talking to me. I felt like it was me, not just to the greater good. It was directed at me. Was that what drew you to Obama initially when you went for the internship or was that just, you know, it was just sort of a, a happy circumstance that you ended up working with him initially? It was, and something more that's also a tie to the Kennedy brothers. I, I was on the floor of the convention in 2004 uh, in Boston because I was working for Senator Kennedy at the time. So I saw President Obama give that speech, State Senator Obama, um, that made him famous. And it was somebody not only from my hometown of Chicago, but who was talking about politics the way I wanted it to be. And I was like, I got to work for this guy. Um, and I got lucky and, and started interning for him. But one of the links there between, it's cool that you, that you thought he you felt like he was talking to you. One of the links was actually letters. President Obama decided even before he took office, after he was elected, but before he took office, he, he said, listen, I want to get 10 letters every night from people out there in America. Um, cause I miss being able to go into people's living rooms and backyards and listen directly to people. Now that I'm about to go into this crazy bubble. And he made sure that we as speechwriters saw those same 10 letters every night. Uh, and he, he said, you know, they need to be a representative sample or they don't do me any good. So we read them all and we learned a ton from those letters. Um, we learned the way that different ways that people think about different issues, how it affects people differently. And, and we made sure that infused all of the speeches. It's incredible. Uh, when you're transitioning into the new role, you know, obviously you're working with him in the campaign and now you're in the White House. Is there a moment in the very onset of the presidency where you're like, yep, I'm going to have time to really like kind of craft and think about what you're, I see you already laughing, so I already know the answer, but, or is it just, you know, we're hitting the ground running and now I have to write this speech and now I have to write, you know, kind of go for it. No, there was no time to think or to craft, um, especially in the beginning. You know, we, I, I went to the White House on January 21st, 2009 and you know, you first walk up to the gate to show your ID before you have a badge and you just, you just, you're positive that they're going to say, no, nah, you're not on the list. Um, and then they let you in and you're like, oh my God. Uh, and you know, on day one, we had to do all sorts of briefings and ethics pledges and, and uh, security checks and get a laptop and find the bathroom. 
But then you also immediately have to write a speech on like the housing market falling apart, millions of Americans losing their homes. And you think, I don't really know much about housing policy. So you have to find some genius at Treasury who does. Uh, and you're just, you were thrown in there, you know, with a, with a 10 pound weight around your legs and you just have to stay afloat. One of the things that I picked apart in the book here as I was reading it and really stuck out to me um, was about using the importance of words in speeches. I know you had mentioned there's a story you talk about in there with Lindsey Graham uh, not having to be as careful with the words that he uses. Um, How much does that weigh on you, even from the very beginning, as you're crafting these speeches and as you're putting these things together? uh, How difficult is it for you to maintain the dialogue of the president while also trying to invoke the importance of the of what's happening and call things really as what they are. Yeah, <clears throat> there's always a delicate balance and it's not a satisfying answer. I mean, the, the president of the United States has to speak to everybody. And unlike Lindsey Graham, for example, he has a sense of shame, uh, which which we made sure to reflect in all of his speeches. You know, the, the Lindsey Graham anecdote in the book was after the, um, after the Boston Marathon bombing, he was very quick to say, listen, we need to make sure that this guy isn't part of some larger plot uh, because he, he's a Muslim. And then, you know, after the white supremacist massacre in Charleston, he didn't say anything remotely like that. He said, oh, no, this kid's probably just a, you know, just some whacked out kid. Um, that's crazy. That, that, was, that was a terrorist attack that killed more people. Um, but, but beyond that, you're always careful with the president's words, not just because it can move armies and markets, but because it can, it can move people. It can affect the national mood. I mean, we, one way to underscore it, as you saw in the Trump years, he wasn't careful with his words, President Trump. And it sort of empowered all these people to um, come out and act on their worst impulses and storm the Capitol. Um, and it's, it's, the president has to set a tone. It's funny you said that because I was, I was uh, reading some of the speeches uh, in the book, in the appendix of your book, and then also going in and sort of putting it side by side by, I picked at random, Trump's uh, coronavirus speech. And I'm sitting there reading it and I'm, I'm really looking at sort of the polished nature of the way that Obama speaks and as the everyman speak in one direction, whereas Trump is the everyman speak in the opposite direction. But it also feels like he goes off script pretty frequently. How difficult was it for you? I don't know if you watched that speech as it happened uh, with the coronavirus speech, but how difficult was it for you to watch that knowing that you had written these incredible speeches prior and seeing him go off the cuff and realizing, holy shit, we're in a moment now where this could alter the trajectory of how we proceed to some things. I, well, I remember watching the the Trump coronavirus speech along with everybody else. This was the week where it it, it first started getting really serious uh, when they canceled an NBA game in the middle of the game, and then Tom Hanks gets it, and you're like, "Oh my god, this right. is a, this, <laughs> these are the that's it." Um, game over. And you're man, watching and Tom it. Hanks has it now. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, you're, you're you're watching it to see if the president of the United States has a plan, um, and he he managed to set himself a very low bar and then trip right over it. Yeah. Um, Nothing. And, and he said things in the speech that were untrue. And then you see, you know, immediately tangibly what a president's words can do, because the very next morning you had like six hour lines in European airports of Americans trying to get home, worried they'd be locked out. Um, you know, Jared Kushner had famously said, I'm in charge of the airports the night before. Whoops. Um, so, you know, it's not just a speech and what you write. It's the policies to back it up. And it's people in government who care. I mean, this is when you can be as anti-government as you want, but then suddenly when something good doesn't go right, you really want the government to have your back. I, uh, I often find myself questioning the way that Trump 
politicized the coronavirus. And I, I think it was very concerning knowing how Obama really handled a lot of these big issues, especially in this week uh, that you talk about in the book here. I think it was paramount for Obama to really reflect how the nation was feeling in a way that could encapsulate all of, you know, all of the emotions and all of the gravity of the situation that was happening. Um, I find myself sort of in these situations when I watch the news or if I, if I, uh, if I'm reading a book or something along nonfiction lines, I find myself stuck in the gravity of the moment. I find myself trying to understand and, and think about what I would do in a moment like that, right? And whether it's a coronavirus, whether it's the shooting at the AME Emanuel Church, uh, as you're writing these speeches, is it difficult in that moment when you're writing to conceptualize that and, and to express that in a way that's going to speak to everybody? Uh, because obviously you know that a lot of these speeches are going to be analyzed and studied and, and, and dissected through history, right? Uh, is it, is it, does the gravity of that moment weigh on you or are you just focused on getting the job done and just making the speech happen and then going back to essentially Monday morning quarterbacking? It depends on how much time you have. If, if I had um, just a very short runway to write a statement, which is usually after something bad happened in the world, um, you don't have time to think, you just do. And, and that makes the act of writing a lot easier. If you do have time, um, you know, I think we had four days after the president finally decided he would do a, a eulogy in Charleston. We had two days after Newtown. Um, more time is harder because I'll, I'll get stuck in my own head going over different arguments to make, different audiences you have to talk to, you know, kind of the high wire act of it all. Um, so it was always a function of time. I, I always thrived when I had much tighter deadlines. If, if you gave me a lot of time, man, uh, I'd struggle. <laughs> I, uh, I typically find myself uh, performing better under pressure. So I definitely can, can associate myself with that. But, um, you know, I really, again, I want to talk about the book and I want to talk about sort of the three big pieces of these 10 days. But um, I also, you, you mentioned the Sandy Hook speech, um, which is probably one of the most difficult speeches I've ever watched and probably one of the most difficult speeches a president has given. Um, what was it like for you? Um, kind of walk me through that day when it happens, you get the moment, you, you have to write this speech. Um, walk me through where your mind was and walk me through how you were able to get Obama's voice captured so, I mean, so eloquently in this speech about such horrible trauma. And the day it happened, I mean, there's just this profound horror inside the West Wing that I assume was exactly the same everywhere else. Um, but I hope it's exactly the same everywhere else. In, in case anyone forgot, uh, you know, on I think it was December 14th, 2012, um, a gunman murdered 20 little kids in their classroom in Newtown, Connecticut, along with six educators who were, who were trying to protect them. And, you know, w we got bits and pieces of the news in the White House a little faster than cable. Um, I remember Alyssa Mastermonico, the deputy chief of staff, came in to the office I shared with John Favreau, who was chief speechwriter at the time and said, listen, this is much worse than Cable knows yet. Uh, and he's gonna, the president's going to have to say something. Um, John Brennan, the counterterrorism advisor, was in there briefing him. And you know, I think everybody was, was not just at a loss for words, but uh, crying. It was, it was the first day that the president's personal assistant um, ever in all eight years called the first lady and asked her to come down to the Oval Office and said, I think you need to be here. Um, so it, this was a Friday and John Favreau was working on the second inaugural address. So he asked me to take a cut at a statement. Uh, he and I took it up there together and the president cut one paragraph and said, this would just be too raw. And it was, it was me trying to play the role of, of parent and what a parent would think. Um, 
which I didn't have children at the time, so I didn't know. You can just you can just guess as much as you can. Uh, and he still couldn't get through it. He he you know he, he cried in the briefing room, and um, you could tell it resonated with people because it was for years it was the number two most viewed White House YouTube right after uh, the Bin Laden raid. Um, and so I find out that afternoon, you know, the memorial service is in two days, which I remember thinking that is really quick. Um, and the president's going to go speak at it. So get to work. And you know, I didn't know what to say. What do you say after something that horrible happens? So I, I you know, I called my mother um, and, and said, what do you say? And she, her advice was pretty much the same as the president's. She said, look, you, you just won't know until you have kids. But it's like that old saying, having a kid is like your heart walking around your body, outside your body all day long. Um, and little kids, little kids trust grownups, you know, they don't, they weren't old enough to know any better. And for someone to violate that trust is just truly awful. Um, so I did what I could. And then the, the president worked on it on Sunday morning while he was actually at Sasha's dance recital because he was going to miss, I think she was doing the Nutcracker that night and he was going to have to miss it for the eulogy. So he went to her recital and worked on it while he was there. Wow. I, uh, I know as a parent, I was getting ready to be a dad uh, probably about six months after that happened. And um, I just remember this like just really awful feeling uh, in the pit of my stomach and just being like, what are we going to do about this? That was my initial, like my secondary thought was, my first was, oh my God, this is the most tragic thing I've ever heard in my entire life. But then it was, how are we going to solve this problem in the country? Because I felt like for a long time, we'd been ignoring it. And what struck me inside of the book too is when Obama talks about, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something along the lines of, I don't want to speak about something like this again if we don't do something about it. Um, and to see that sort of, I guess, uncharacteristic, um, not I want to say defeat, but disappointment uh, inside of Obama. I mean, what was that? What did that relate to you in that moment? Yeah, it was, it was the most cynical I've ever seen him. This was um, about five months after Newtown. And he, he pushed aside his second term agenda right off the bat to, to do something about guns instead, or at least to try, knowing that we didn't have enough votes in the Senate. Um, but what kind of president are you? What kind of person are you if you're not going to try to do something? And so he, he traveled the country, talked to a bunch of different groups of people, gun owners, the NRA, cops, uh, the parents of Sandy Hook, and um, Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey. And, and Pat Toomey is as conservative as a guest, senator from Pennsylvania. The two of them got together and did a background checks bill that was blocked in the Senate by Republicans. They wouldn't even allow a vote on it. Um, while the Newtown parents were in the gallery watching this go down. And so they came back to the White House and stood with the president while he gave a pretty angry statement in the Rose Garden. But when he came back in, um, he said, "What you know, I don't want to speak the next time this happens. What else is there to say? If, if, if we're going to decide as a country not to do something about this after something like Newtown, then I don't want to continue this cycle where every time there's a mass shooting, you know, we all kind of bicker with each other. I go up and give a eulogy and then we all move on. I don't want to move on. I think people need to be angry about this. I think people need to get political about it or nothing's ever going to change. And then that went directly into, he had to speak after a couple more mass shootings. Um, there was a, a one at the Washington Navy Yard and then unbelievably a second mass shooting in just a few years at Fort Hood in Texas. And as commander in chief, you just go do that. Um, but after Charleston in 2015, he, he stood firm to that and said, I don't, I don't want to speak. I don't want to give a eulogy. Um, and he ultimately changed his mind about halfway through the 10 days. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and for those, just as, as context here, the Emanuel uh, AME shooting happened uh, June 17th, uh, 2015, where nine people were killed by white supremacist and terrorist Dylan Roof. Um, uh, so 
it's it's crazy. And I think the biggest conversation that we had about this entire situation outside of the gun control was really a question about race relations in the country. Um, as a as a white man, was it difficult for you to find a way to properly present um, the sentiments of the black community after something like this happened? Walk me through your processes on on that. For sure. I, I've never felt whiter than I was writing for the first black president. Um, I was hyper aware of it. And there were plenty of times when I, I thought somebody else should have this job. But, uh, you know, he, he chose me for a reason and kept me around. And, and what was helpful that was that our, our chief speechwriter, even though I had the title, our real chief speechwriter was Barack Obama. And it was it was his words. It was his life experience that we went through as we were writing. Um, but it was a real challenge, you know, to, to to be a great speechwriter, you not only have to be able to string a sentence together, but you have to have a sense of empathy and understand a bunch of different audiences, walk around in their shoes. And you know, there are limits to that because none of us have lived every life. It's impossible. Um, I will never know what it's truly like to be a black man in America. And I could only get there through him, through talking to other young black men and women on staff and, and trying to challenge as much as I could. And sometimes I still couldn't quite get there. You know, the, the Charleston eulogy in particular, he tore up the back half and rewrote it longhand and took it to a place I couldn't reach. Wow. I, uh, I, I want to talk to you. I want to sort of pick apart what you said about Barack Obama there as the chief speechwriter. Um, he refers to you essentially as collaborators, right? He says at some point, he says, you give me the scaffolding. I needed to build something here. Uh, but I also sense in that moment um, when you're writing the eulogy, I believe that was the part where you were writing the eulogy, I felt this disappointment in, in your voice as you're writing. Um, that's something that I can experience a lot when, I, when I'm working with someone and I'm, and I'm in a collaborative space um, and I feel as though I've sort of like not given them all the tools that they need. Um, when he said that to you, was that, a, was that a great sense of relief to you as an individual and also reaffirming your position as the chief speechwriter uh, you know, and co-collaborator with him? Yeah, it was. It, you know, when we were at our best, um, it was when a speech was a two, true collaboration. We could pass drafts back and forth and make each make each other better. In this situation, I felt like I had let him down by just I knew the draft wasn't there and I didn't know where else to take it. And the fact that I'd agonized over it for three days and he basically rewrote half of it in three hours, uh, you know, was a real kick in the nets. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine. I just, I just felt, well, I felt terrible about myself. I felt like I'd let him down in a, in a profound way and told him as much, which I don't usually do. I, I apologized. Um, and, but that's when he stepped up and, and reminded me of, of what our relationship was and, and the fact that I, I gave him something he could work with, even, even if he took it to a much higher plane than I could. Um, and, and I mean, it's a, just a nice thing to hear from your boss, but, um, it's true. I'd, I'd lost sight of the fact that we were collaborators because I put all this pressure on myself. And then, you know, you know, even when you're collaborators, you don't want to give the other person garbage that they have to go do a ton of work on. And especially him. We always wanted to give him our best work. I, we wanted him to read a draft and say, hot damn, that's it. Um, and sometimes that happened. <laughs> right. But it, in this week, it just it just didn't. One of the more famous moments that happened during the eulogy uh, in 2015 was the the singing of Amazing Grace by Barack Obama. Um, tell me about that moment when he started to sing. How many did you know about that previously? Was that something you had spoken about? Um, and then as it happened, what was going through your mind? Well, I wrote into the speech, sir, sing here. Uh, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, that's I totally. I figured, that's, so let me just, I'm going to make yeah. sure I notate that right here for you, sir, yeah. right here. Yeah, no. People have asked me that before. They're like, did you, did you write that? And you're like, no, you can't, you can't manufacture a moment like that. Right. There's, so there, there, there are technical reasons 
how it came about, but there are also kind of bigger contextual reasons. And, you know, even though that 10 days started in, in just the, the worst way imaginable, uh, they unfolded much differently than expected. You know, we didn't enter that cycle right off the bat of finger pointing and blame. And, and I, there are a couple of reasons why I suspect that's true. You know, two days after the massacre, um, the families of the victims forgave the killer in court on live television, which like blew all of our minds. And now you got, I've talked to people afterwards, including the president's pastor about, you know, where they said, if you're, if you know anything about the AME church, you wouldn't be surprised because one of the tenets of the church is grace and forgiveness. Um, that's not what I was taught in the Episcopal church, you know, not me either in the Methodist church. I can tell you that's yeah. Yeah, not, not you a know, chance. We all know the old line, forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us, but you don't think about extending that to someone killing your parents. Um, so to watch that was truly extraordinary. And I, I do think, I, I have no data to back this up, that it changed the direction of the country a little bit. And everybody was walking a little straighter in a better direction. You even started, to, you know, you saw, well, another reason is, you know, the NRA always goes silent after a mass shooting. They're nowhere to be found for about a week. Um, their social media person takes a vacation. And I think some of the, you know, um, crueler elements in American society were maybe just a, not chastised, but quieter than usual because it was an act of terrorism carried out under their banner, under the Confederate flag. Um, but then you start to see America's biggest merchants say, we're not going to sell Confederate flag merchandise anymore. You start to see Republicans in the South, including the Republican governor of Alabama, order the flag taken down of Republic spaces. Um, you know, we, we, kind of darkly joked inside the White House, you know, our to-do list when we came into office was thousands of items long, and that wasn't on it. Um, and then the Supreme Court upholds uh, Obamacare, and millions of Americans can exhale that they still have health insurance, you know, that, that we've decided as a country that working Americans have a right to it. Um, the morning of the eulogy, the Supreme Court finds a right to marriage equality. And you know, millions of Americans are, are not going to be told that they're second-class citizens. Their love is equal to ours. And, and, and you know, we weren't just watching joyous scenes at, at the Supreme Court on television. We heard it inside the West Wing from our own colleagues who suddenly could get married and propose. And, and so he, when he did all that work on it the night before, he didn't know about marriage. He's just, he had a good suspicion about which way it would go. But he, as he wrote in the speech, was feeling an open heart. Um, because a week that had started so horribly and he was always mindful. He's still, even after the joyous morning, he's going to eulogize people who died in a racist terror attack. Um, but he had an open heart and he added the lyrics to the song. And uh, that morning on Marine One, by then it might've been right after noon, I'm not sure. We, we Right after he's finished speaking um, uh, at the White House on marriage equality, we boarded Marine One to head to Andrews Air Force Base to head to Charleston. And he handed me the latest draft of the speech just as he about to get off the helicopter. And he said, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. Um, and so uh, there were only four of us sitting there, the first lady, the chief of staff, Valerie Jarrett and me, um, who heard that and knew about that. And I didn't, you know, I didn't prep anybody in the arena for it. Uh, and then you, you watch him kind of gather his, his breath and burst into song and you could just sort of see it blow everybody's mind at once. It's unbelievable. It's really a, a quite a striking moment. One question I want to ask you first before we start to wrap up the conversation here is the antidote that you tell about Miles Davis uh, that President Obama says to you as you're writing the speech. Can you sort of just walk me through that? Not to obviously because I want people to buy the book, right? But I really thought I really found this fascinating and and what it could tell you not just as a speechwriter or as a writer, but someone in what that lesson and that narrative could do for everyone in their life. Yeah, it's funny. He he often deployed 
uh, some of his most profound lessons through jazz, which which I had never expected coming from him. You know, when I was struggling with a speech in 2013, it was a speech for the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, which they talk about a high bar. It's just impossible. It's like, hey, we want you to go stand on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial 50 years to the day after Dr. King gave the I the Dream speech and do the sequel. And you're like, come on. <laughs> no pressure. Um, no pressure, Cody. Yeah. And he, he, he goes, uh, I want you to... Um, read James Baldwin if you're stuck and listen to John Coltrane when you're not um, uh, or vice versa. Um, and uh, I thought that was cool. It, but then, so Miles Davis came around in 2015. Um, I had just given him a draft of the state of the address eight days early, which was a new record. And I was, I was pretty pleased with it as far as state of the union addresses go. Everything was in there. Um, it was eight pages long. You know, I satisfied everybody. And he called me up to uh, his dining room off the Oval Office and said, hey, you know, we're in great shape. We're in the best shape we've been a week out. Um, but everything is in here. Every word means something. Every every sentence means something. I was like, yeah, I know. That's like how a student of the interest works. Everything has to be in there. And he goes, no, 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 you're not following. He said, you know, he said, you listen to Miles Davis? And I was like, no, not really. Like I was, I was just kind of mastering Coltrane at that point. Um, <laughs> and he said, and you know, I didn't know at the time that this was kind of widely understood, but he said, uh, you know, the thing about Miles Davis is the silences. It's the notes you don't play. That's what makes him so good. And um, he said, you know, I need everything in the speeches at a 10. I need some of it at a seven, some of it at a four. And then I understood what he was talking about. I'm like, I hadn't in my, in my zeal to make sure everything was in there. I'd put everything in there and I didn't have any kind of quiet or emotional moments. I was like, all right, I got this. And he goes, no, I want to tell you what, I want you to go home tonight and I want you to pour yourself a drink and listen to some Miles Davis. Don't do any work. Uh, and then come back tomorrow and find me some silences. And I was like, all right, I can do that. <laughs> it's incredible. Cause I think about it. I'm a writer too. And you know, I, I do a lot of these, these shows and these conversations and it's, it's, it's something I never thought about letting that, those moments, those key moments do the talking for you. And it's just, it was a, it was an incredible sort of light bulb moment. Um, did that, I guess that carried on through the rest of your time as the speechwriter at, uh, with Obama. Yeah. It just ended up being sort of a nice little life mantra. You know, I, I, I deploy it now a lot with my baby daughter who's 22 months old. Um, and I just try to, you know, I have three jobs and I just try to force those silences into my own life. Um, leave the phone at home, take her to the playground, you know, pay attention, just be present with her. And it all sounds like, you know, mindfulness gobbledygook, but that just happens to be my little phrase that I took from him. It's find the silences. One thing I wanted to ask you too, um, cause I see this a lot in, in the conversations and things you've been doing for the book, um, is the feeling of hopefulness going forward. I know that when Trump gave his inaugural president, former president Trump gave his inaugural speech, which I must uh, say that George W. Bush has been quoted by saying, well, that was some weird shit. Uh, so I think we should have all been aware at that point what was happening. Uh, but I think about those times and I think about the way that things really did a 180 in this country from the time that Barack Obama was in office to Donald Trump. Now we're here at, you know, in, in President Joe Biden. Um, with everything that's been happening, even recently, um, you know, with the undoing of Roe versus Wade being at the top of that list, do you still find yourself hopeful now for the future? Um, <clears throat> net, net, I'd say yes. And I know, you know, let me just back that up by saying, I know how naive that sounds. I know how awful everything can be. Um, but, but hope doesn't mean that you're oblivious. Hope doesn't mean willful ignorance or just hoping things will get better. It means actually doing the hard work to make them better. It's knowing that this country is capable of change. If you care enough and rally enough people to your side and ultimately change hearts and minds. It's, it's, a, it's a hope that is hard edged and even a little bit subversive. You know, cynicism is easy. Anybody can do it. 
anyone can say everything sucks. Like, just look around. We can see that. But, um, but what's that going to do to change anything for the better other than convince people to sit out of democracy and sit out of the process? And that's the antithesis to everything that we ever believed in, everything I ever learned from him. And, you know, I probably wouldn't have written this book without the Trump years to show us what the exact opposite was, to show us what's important and what's at stake and how fragile progress is. You know, the, the, the entire American story is bursts of progress followed by backlash to that progress. And it's, it's the side that sticks with it the most and the longest, no matter what, that ultimately wins out. You know, I, I stole kind of my thesis for this book from something President Obama wrote into the Selma speech, which is that politics is, we well, describing Selma, but I, you can apply it to our politics. It's, uh, it's a contest to determine the true meaning of America and whether or not we're going to be a country that treats everybody equally, that you know, makes sure everybody's got a fair shot, that makes sure people aren't second-class citizens or use them as, as political pawns. Or are we going to be a country where you you consolidate wealth and privilege among just a few white people who use that power to punish everybody else. Um, I think that sucks. And I, I think what makes us unique as a country is the fact that we are trying to do this multiracial, multiethnic, multi-faith democracy and make it work. It is much harder than autocracy, but, but why would you want to live in the alternate? No, I agree with that. And um, I want you to go and pick up the book right now. Uh, it is out. Grace, President Obama, and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Cody Keenan is my guest today on the show. I also want to wish the Cubs good luck tonight against the Philadelphia Phillies. I know you were a Cubs guy. I'm a Phillies guy. Thank you. Yeah, I, and our, I mean, our season you know. Go Phil. Our season's our season's long over. I got the alert last week that was like the, the Cubs are officially eliminated. And I said, "Did that just happen now?" <laughs> I always we're in Philadelphia. We always just we tend to hold our breath about everything because when it seems like it's going well, like Philly seem to be doing all right right now. Eagles seem to be having a really good season, but then all of a sudden, you know, Donovan McNabb throws up on the fifty yard line. So we're never really sure whenever anything happens. So I just wanted to wish them uh, wish them good luck. But Cody Keenan, where can everybody find you on social media to keep up with your uh, your activity? and what's going on in your world? Uh, Cody Keenan everywhere. Cody Keenan Twitter, Instagram, CodyKeenan.com. Um, not only has information on the book, but uh, I'm going on tour in a lot of different cities with some really cool guests at each stop. Um, so please come on out and say hi. I appreciate your time. Cody Keenan, thank you so much. Uh, and I thank look forward you. to having you back on. Thanks a lot. It was fun. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by me, Adam Barnard. Additional production and narration provided by Sam Krebs. Mixing, mastering, and engineering is done by Carl Pinnell. The show's intro and outro music is written, recorded, and performed by Dumb Ugly. Additional musical accompaniment produced and recorded by Enrichment. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almey. Follow the show on Twitter at FND Radio Pod and find us on Instagram at Foundation underscore radio. This has been a Butts Carlton Media Production. Butts Carlton Proprietor. 